Let's go over now and say hello to Dr. Wade Davis. Nice to have you with us today. Hi, Gary. Um, I just did a, a commentary on one professor from Emory University's uh, views of what's wrong with this current administration. I would like to open up with a philosophical overview before we go into the specifics on your work. When you take a look, just as the average person, not one of the wealthy 1%, you're looking at a society that is puzzled. The average person, if you consider us a tribe, um, they're saying, I have done no harm. I try to do what I'm told to do and do it the best I can. When the government says we're going to give you uh, give taxes that you're going to pay to companies to bail them out, we said okay. And then we find that those companies, many of whom, like Bank America and Citicorp, they they have the mortgage on my home and they're willing to throw me out of my home. I'm I don't understand that. I'm asking you this for a couple of reasons. I'll get to in a moment. Other people are suggesting that. Why can't we have a system where everyone's health needs are met without it bankrupting us? Isn't that part of being in a society? We have another group of people who say, but, but you're not important enough to save. If you were too big to fail, we would make you bigger. That's what we did. And so I'm, I'm thinking, gee whiz, if you were to go to any of the aboriginal cultures and you would apply the same principles that we are applying now under this democratically dominated Congress, but it would have been equally true under a Republican dominated Congress, they do not look at the average person or the member of the larger tribe or community as having any relevance except as a commodity. If they cannot commodify you, commercialize you, objectify you, then you do not exist. And that's why you don't hear a word Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe you have heard, I'm only speaking for myself, about the poor. I see no one on the networks going into a poor person's home. I don't see anyone uh, going with a family for a month who's living out of a van to show what it's like to live with a family of four in a van every day, having no place to go to the bathroom. I don't see anyone going into the schools of seeing 12.6 million American children going to school on an empty stomach. They're hungry. Many are suffering from severe malnutrition. 50 million Americans, 49.1 Americans as of last week, are not getting enough food each, each week, and yet we're a country that suffers from morbid obesity more than any other population per capita in the world. So from these perspectives, could you then guide us of how other cultures treat each other, how other cultures would view this process that we're currently engaged in? The form is yours. Well, you know, I think that one of the, one of the points you're making is that um, all of us are members of a culture, and typically we uh, tend to be ethnocentric. All societies are sort of fiercely loyal to our own interpretations of reality, and that's not only sort of something kind of quintessentially American. Um, you know, the Aztec, the word Nahuatl, um, you know, if someone who didn't speak the language is sort of like savage, and the same thing with the Greeks, the word barbarian comes from the word barbarous, meaning one who babbles. And so there has been a tendency through history to think of oneself as being the real world and the other people's being somehow failed attempts at being you. And I think that one of the 
points I try to uh, say to people is that, you know, if, if a Martian anthropologist came, for example, to the United States, they would see many wondrous things. And if the measure of success was, say, technological innovation and wizardry, certainly the American and the industrial world in general would, would, would shine. But they'd also look at, say, our social structure and, and, and be a little perplexed by the fact that we um, revere marriage and let half our marriages end in divorce, that we uh, celebrate the, uh, the notion of family, but only 6% of American homes have grandparents beneath the same roof as grandchildren, that we celebrate our families, but we have a slogan. We also celebrate 24-7, implying dedication utterly to workplace, and then we wonder why the average youth in America by the age of 18 has spent two or three years, in some cases, uh, passively watching television. I mean, if you add to that a kind of an economic system of generating wealth and and productivity that clearly is compromising um, the, the life supports of the planet, you suddenly realize that we're many wondrous things, but we're not the paragon of humanity's potential. And these other places are not failed or cultures are not failed attempts being us. So unique answers to a fundamental question, what does it mean to be human and alive? And I, I think that's really, in a sense, Gary, the, the central sort of message of, of my book and of anthropology in general. I mean, one of the great revelations of anthropology in the last, uh, of science in, in the last 20 years has come from genetics in which we have utterly shown that all of us are cut from the same genetic cloth. You know, studies of the human genome have left absolutely no doubt that race is an utter fiction. Uh, the genetic endowment of humanity is a single continuum, and that we're all descended from a relatively small group of individuals, um, our direct ancestors who walked out of Africa some 55,000 years ago. And yet if you accept that, which is scientifically um, uh, beyond doubt, then the corollary is if we're all cut from the same genetic cloth, we all share the same raw genius. We all share the same raw intellectual capacity. And therefore, how a particular culture chooses to use that genius is simply a matter of choice. And so it puts a final, in a sense, spike into the coffin of, of the old Victorian idea that there was some kind of you know, trajectory of progress in the affairs of human beings that invariably placed Western industrial society at the apex of the pyramid and went down the flanks of the so-called primitives of the world. You know, that there was a sort of set theater piece um, in which different cultures represented different stages in, in an imagined development from the so-called savage or barbarian to the civilized uh, of the Strand in London. That idea has been exposed as, a, as an utter kind of 19th century um, conceit um, as significant to our time as the Victorian idea that the earth was merely 6,000 years old. And, and so the, the great lesson of that is that the other peoples of the world um, are, offer us different and alternative visions of life itself. And not to suggest that we should be going back to an industrial, a pre-industrial past or that these different indigenous societies should in any way be um, you know, kept from enjoying the brilliant, the, the products of the brilliance of Western science, but it's merely to suggest there are, are alternatives. And so what I, I do in all my work is to, I try to um, make that sort of fundamental statement, then also draw people's attention to the extraordinary fact that of the 7,000 languages spoken today, fully half are not being taught to school children. In other words, they're literally on the road to extinction. And 
this is a kind of extraordinary thing. I mean, no biologist would, would suggest that half of all species of plant and, um, and animal are morbid because it simply is not true. And yet that, the most sort of apocalyptic scenario in the realm of biodiversity, scarcely approaches what we know to be the most optimistic scenario in the realm of cultural diversity. And the great indicator of that, of course, is language loss. And so, you know, every two weeks, some elder passes away and carries with him or her into the grave the last syllables of an ancient tongue. And when you recognize that these, all these different cultures represent different um, expressions of the human heart, different, different um, visions of reality itself, it truly represents the loss of half of humanity's spiritual, intellectual, and social legacy. And this is really the hidden backdrop of our age, and it's not, it, it doesn't have to happen. And so the question becomes, what can you do to, to, to uh, reverse this trend? You know, you can't make a rainforest park of the mind. You can't sequester people in time. You can't, uh, you, 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 you can't um, uh, try to freeze the moment. Um, in fact, change is not a threat to culture. Change is one constant in history. All cultures are dancing with, um, with with new possibilities for life all the time. And, and technology is no threat to culture. I mean, the Lakota Sioux did not stop being Sioux when they gave up the uh, bow and arrow for the rifle any more than an American farmer stopped being an American when he or she gave up the uh, horse and buggy for the automobile. What, what we see is we have this kind of idea that these cultures, um, quaint and colorful uh, though they may be, are somehow destined to fade away as if they're, you know, by some natural law, as if Indeed, they are failed attempts at keeping up with history, um, you know, and nothing could be further from the truth. And in, in, in all my travels, which have taken me for the National Geographic and uh, throughout the world, uh, these are dynamic living peoples that are being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. And that's actually an optimistic observation because it suggests that if human beings are the agents of cultural destruction, we can be the facilitators of cultural survival. And those forces affecting culture are, are uh, numerous. I mean, it can be egregious industrial uh, decisions that lead to the deforestation of a people's homeland, as in the case of the Penan um, of Sarawak in East Malaysia, which I write about in the book. Or it can be the imposition of ideology in the case of the domination of the Tibetan Buddhist plateau and, and the Tibetan plateau by, um, by Beijing and the sort of the materialist ideology of, of, of um, uh, the communist regime. It can be the ideology of modernity imposed through the development paradigm on nomadic peoples in sub-Saharan Africa. But in, but in, in answering the question, you know, how do you, what do we do about it? What can we do about it? You know, my thought has always been that the, the way social change happens is less through polemics or even through politics but often through narrative, through storytelling, and through people, um, you know, being 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 touched emotionally by something that um, encourages them to change the way they think and and the way they view, in this case, view and value culture. And so, in my travels, which is really what the book The Wayfinders is all about, I take I take the reader uh, to places in the in the culture sphere of life where the beliefs and practices are so dazzling and so amazing that you can't help but come away with a new appreciation of the wonder of cultural diversity. And so, for example, uh, the title 
chapter of the book, The Wayfinders, uh, is an account of the time I spent with the Polynesian Voyaging Society uh, sailing throughout the South Pacific on a recreated um, catamaran, which was sort of a, uh, an echo of the sacred canoes that carried the Polynesians across the greatest culture sphere ever brought into being by humanity, and that was, of course, Polynesia. Uh, tens of thousands of islands flung like jewels in the southern sea. And these were the finest navigators in the history of humanity. Um, these were sailors who even today can sense the presence of distant atolls of islands beyond the visible horizon simply by watching the reverberation of waves across the hull of their vessel, knowing full well that every island group in the Pacific has its own refractive pattern that can be identified with the same perspicacity with which a forensic scientist would identify a fingerprint. And these are sailors who, in the darkness of the hull of the canoe, uh, can sense as many as five different sea swells moving through the canoe at any one point in time, distinguishing um, you know, uh, currents that are caused by local weather disturbances or waves that, that buffet the canoe from the deep currents or that pulsate, in some cases, thousands of miles across the ocean and which can be followed with the same sort of ease with which a terrestrial explorer would follow a river to the sea. Indeed, if you took all of the genius that has allowed us to put a man on the moon and applied it to an understanding of the ocean, what you would get is Polynesia. Or, you know, if we thought of another example, um, um, I was just talking before the show with your producer, Rich, who... Um, turns out to be a friend of a close friend of mine, Mathieu Ricard, this remarkable uh, Tibetan monk. And what, uh, Mathieu's kind of a legendary figure, and he's a translator for His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama in Europe and a personal advisor to the president of France on Tibetan and Chinese affairs. But Mathieu's personal biography is fascinating because at one point he was a very serious molecular biologist studying in the lab of a Nobel laureate at the Pasteur Institute. And he was raised in one of the most sort of intellectually uh, accomplished families in France. His father was a famous um, philosopher. His mother was a famous painter. And he had people like Cartier-Bresson teaching him photography and Stravinsky and Claude Lévi-Strauss hanging out in his house. And Mathieu realized that there was no correlation as a young man between wealth, fame, and happiness. And so he had a kind of a, a crisis in a sense, and he ended up going off to... Um, Nepal and becoming ordained as a Tibetan monk and he, he is a fascinating figure to open the whole world of, of Tibetan Buddhism and he uses the phrase science of the mind and when he first used that I was very intrigued particularly because of his background as a molecular biologist he said well what after all is science but the pursuit of the, the truth what is Tibetan Buddhism but 2,500 years of direct empirical observation as to the nature of mind. He said, you know, Western science was too often a, a major response to minor needs. We spend too much of our time trying to live to be 100 without losing our teeth, Matthew said, uh, whereas in Tibet people pay attention to the, to the nature of reality and the possibility of transformation. He said that billboards in New York City celebrate naked teenagers in underwear, the billboards in Tibet are nani walls of prayers for the well-being of all sentient creatures. And I, I, I went with Mathieu on a kind of pilgrimage of the heart, in a sense, um, uh, traveling under the, sort of the guidance of uh, Chosik Rinpoche, who was the head of the Nyingma tradition and one of the teachers of the Dalai Lama. And 
uh, we traveled up into the Himalaya not to climb a mountain, but to, in a way, experience something quite different, which was the true culture hero of of Tibet, which is the the Bodhisattva, the the, the individual being who has achieved um, liberation and enlightenment in this lifetime, yet remains in the realm of samsara, this earthly realm, to fac- facilitate the liberation of other sentient beings. And this was actually um, a woman who had gone into lifelong retreat 45 years ago. And for 45 years, she had lived in a little room in a nunnery, uh, spending her entire waking hours uh, of her sentient existence chanting one single mantra um, in in this sort of extraordinary act of contemplative wisdom. And as we approached the, the, the door, and as the door open for the first time in the face of this woman, I half expected to encounter someone who would be mad. Instead, you know, I saw a, a face that sparkled with happiness and eyes that were just light with, with, um, with spirit. And, and it was fascinating because afterwards, Mathieu said to me, you know, that the, the, the proof of the serenity, I mean, the proof of the efficacy of the Buddhist science of the mind is indeed the serenity achieved by those who follow the fourth of the noble truths, which is the specific contemplative practice that if followed, according to the Buddhist, not only has the possibility of a transformation of the human heart, but has 2,500 years of empirical evidence that such a transformation is indeed possible. And, and as, as a lama um, once told Mathieu, you know, we in Tibet don't believe you went to the moon, but you did. You may not believe that we achieve enlightenment in one lifetime, but we do. I really appreciate those insights. Thank you for that. One of the main characteristics we find running throughout indigenous cultures is the view of human beings intricately connected to the web of all life in the natural environment. Furthermore, unlike our secular reductionistic society that is based upon the reason of the mind, other people recognize the sacredness of the land and the forces of nature. Yet for most people in the West, they would regard the spiritual attributes to nature as mere superstition. So so how would you respond to people who deny the sacredness of the landscape of animals or rivers of other life forms of the mantra your your experienced woman was sharing in her own life and you witnessed uh, when that same person coming from a similar background of let's say a, a trust baby with all the accoutrements would immediately go off uh, to Wall Street or head up a hedge fund and uh, would actually exploit all the virtues that you're talking about. Well, you know, the the uh, you know, I, I try not to be um, judgmental um, uh, as much as celebratory when I think of these other possibilities of life. And and the the notion of relationship to landscape has been sort of spoken about in such glib terms that it's almost become hippie ethnography. And so that's I think it, that's one of the reasons that people don't. Um, Think of it as seriously as they do. Um, uh, what I, what I, when I, when I write about, as I do in the book, The Wayfinders, uh, the notion of sacred geography. It's not to suggest that that you know indigenous people are inherently um, closer to the earth than we could ever be, or that um, 
they're they're more kind of you know Rousseauian, uh, animalistic in terms of their relationship. I mean, nothing could be further from truth. Nor are they overtly more contemplative in their daily lives necessarily than we might be. It's it, it, the, the relationship between indigenous people, many of them in the landscape. Uh, in my experience, has been based on a much more subtle idea, and that's the idea that the world itself only exists because it, it is breathed into being by human consciousness. In other words, the, the, there's a very real and dynamic sense of reciprocity um, between societies and landscape. And this comes in part, particularly in mountain reaches in the world, like the Himalaya or the Andes of Peru and Bolivia, uh, where this is not simply something that is sort of coming out of their imagination. It's a really raw practicality. They can see, you know, in these agricultural societies, you know, they see the, the manner in which the mountains, for example, capture the, um, the, the clouds and how the clouds, um, you know, um, bring the rain and the rain brings fertility to the soil. So there's, there is this dynamic sense of reciprocity that if, if human beings um, take care or, or give pay homage to the earth, the earth will somehow in turn um, get, deliver bounty to them. What I find interesting about this is not to get into sort of like who's right and who's wrong, who's good and who's bad, but just to observe that these beliefs have really different consequences. So, for example, Gary, um, going back to where I grew up, I, I grew up in the forests of British Columbia on the west coast of Canada, and I grew up to believe that those forests existed to be cut. That was the basis of the ideology of scientific forestry that I was taught in school and that I practiced in the woods as a logger. Now, that made me very different than people my same age amongst the Kwakwakawak who believed that those same forests um, were the abode of Hukuk and the crooked, beak of, uh, the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits that dwelt at the north end of the world, spirits that would have to be embraced by the young boy during his initiation uh, so that he could bring the wisdom of the wild back to the community in the potlatch. Now, the interesting point is not who's right and who's wrong. Was that forest really the abode of spirits or was it the, you know, a mere, a, a mere repository of cellulose and bored feet? Of timber, and the interesting thing is how the belief system has a really different consequence for the land. You know, the indigenous people of the First Nations of the coast of British Columbia lived on that coast with a relatively small imprint uh, for at least 1,500 years, and they would say far longer. Uh, my culture has been there three generations, and we've and we've literally torn down the ancient forests. By the same token, a child raised in Peru to believe that the mountain that oversees his or her village is a sacred mountain, a mountain deity, an apu that will direct his or her destiny, that child is going to have a very different relationship to that uh, mountain than a kid raised in West Virginia to believe that a mountain is simply a pile of rock ready to be mined. Again, the interesting thing is not how um, the... the um, the, the, whether the mountain's a spirit or whether it's a pile of ore, it's how the belief system has real consequences. And various peoples of the world, I mean, the most remarkable, I would say, in my experience, uh, are the Arawakos and the Kohi, these are the, and the Wiwa, these three incredible, uh, closely related peoples who live in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta that soars above the Caribbean coastal plain of Colombia. These um, three cultures are the descendants of the ancient um, uh, Tyrona civilization, which dominated the Caribbean coastal plain of Colombia, 
until defeated in a terrible war with the Spanish in, in 1571. And in the wake of that, um, that terrible war, um, the, the indigenous people fled high into this sort of sacred massif that soars literally to 6,000 meters, the highest coastal mountain feature on, on Earth, within 30 kilometers from the, from the um, sh- seashore. And to this day, in a kind of bloodstained continent, they remain um, uh, ruled, in a sense, by a ritual priesthood of mamos. And the, for the priesthood is remarkable. The young acolytes are taken away at the age of um, two and three with the acquiescence of the parents. And for 18 years, they, um, they live within the confines of the sacred men's circle. And during that time, the world only kind of exists as an abstraction as they're taught the values of their culture, values that, values that literally um, maintain the idea that their prayers and their prayers alone maintain the cosmic or we might say ecological balance. And at the end of this extraordinary initiation, the young uh, men are taken on a pilgrimage from, from, from the village to the sacred ice the heart of the world and back to the sea to, to kind of carry products from the mountains to the ocean and from the ocean back to the mountains. And, and suddenly they see the world as it is. It's, imagine if a, if a kid in America had spent 18 years in a room um, or in the confines of his garden um, and just hearing about how beautiful the world was and then suddenly was taken um, you know, on a pilgrimage to see the great sights of, of the earth. That's that's essentially what it is. And, it, and the people literally speak in full paragraphs of their obligation as what they call the el- themselves the elder brothers to maintain the sacred balance of the world. And they dismiss the rest of us who lap up against the base of their mountain massif as the younger brothers who have, through our ignorance, um, compromised the world and torn into the sacred mother and in fact you know brought us to the point where we are in terms of climate change and and um the environmental consequences of last hundred years of industrialization and so you know to, to know that a people like that are living two hours from miami beach um you know the metaphor for the culture is 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 um the loom they say upon this loom i weave my life and as they move up and down the um, the flank of their mountain homeland, exploiting various ecological niches for various crops. Um, you know, they refer to their movements as threads, so that over the course of a lifetime, you know, you literally weave the cloak over over the the, the flank of the great mother. I mean, it's a, a profoundly um, baroque religious um, set of ideas. And what's also fascinating about it is that we know that the, the Tyrona. Um, were a fiercely warlike people, and in the wake of that, the conquest, um, almost through what we think to be deliberate intent, and this is not something coming out of hippie ethnography, uh, the, the, the Kogi and the Wiwa have, and the uh, Arawakos uh, have transformed their civilization into a devotional culture of peace. And, and you know, it's a phenomenal society, and and one of you know, and I recently, and I described this in the book, The Wayfinders, was extremely fortunate because no anthropologist and certainly no journalist and filmmaker has ever been invited to accompany one of these um, initiates on the sacred pilgrimage, and it, it was made possible because a, a delegation of Arawakos came to Washington D.C., and the ambassador of Columbia told me about about their visit. I invited them to the National Geographic, and 
three of the men couldn't speak any Spanish. Um, these were three of the mamos, the priests who had been brought um, by the leader of the delegation, a younger man, Danilo Villafaña. And as Danilo was speaking to me in Spanish, uh, I suddenly interrupted him. I said, my God, you know, I hate to be rude, but you'd look exactly like an old friend of mine. And it turns out that I, I had lived with Danilo's family when I was a young boy, a uh, young man uh, in 1974. And I said to Danilo, um, uh, you know, you may not remember Danilo, but I carried you on my back when you were a baby for weeks up and down the mountains. And this kind of serendipitous um, connection, and, and then I was able to pull a copy of another book of mine, One River, off the shelf, and by chance, the frontispiece of one of the chapters had a photograph of um, Danilo's father, Adalberto, who was subsequently murdered um, by the paramilitaries or the FARC. We don't really know. So there's this wonderful kind of reconnection, and, and, be, and, and on the basis of that, in good measure, um, we were invited to, uh, to make this remarkable film um, of, of the sacred pilgrimage. But, you know, you can go, Gary, anywhere around the world, and you find these, these fantastic... Um, um, you know, fantastic um, cultural expressions. I was reminded that I, I, I just wait, recently... Wait just one second, because we're right at the end of... We have 30 seconds to go. Oh. Would, you, would you be willing to come back for part two in the near oh, future? Oh, sure. I, we're just... You're, you're, you're the wonderful storyteller that we don't want to interrupt the story. and But we've got to go because the next program starting here on PFW. Please accept an invitation to come back. I will spend the whole hour... Uh, and we will uh, be enlightened by your journey. Thank you that, very much for being with us today. That'd be great, Gary. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Dade, Wade Davis, my guest, noted anthropologist, ethnobotanist, a National Geographic um, our explorer in residence, and author of The Wayfinders, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World. And, uh, and it sure does. <laughs> 